I'll be reading from the New Living Translation today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshippers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. We uh, began reading in the New Testament eight weeks ago in the story, actually it was Luke's gospel, uh, and that's the Christmas story, and the angel came to a young woman named Mary, it was a strange visitation, and uh, she, because of that visitation and her response to it, there were uh, a series of events that were put into motion in this backwaters of the Roman Empire. And in that account, <clears throat> Caesar Augustus is named, and uh, then uh, it was... Now, what we just read from is the end of the book. So those eight weeks, we've gone from the beginning of the story to the end of the story of Jesus Christ, as as is revealed to us. And look at the change. And, and of course, Caesar didn't care one bit or the other what happened with this angel and this girl. And he's just a footnote in that story, too, by the way. And this great, the greatest man in the world, at the end of the story, it's all about Jesus Christ and he is the king of kings and the lord of lords and he will rule forever and ever and Rome is a footnote in the history of the world go figure it, you, you couldn't make this story up I mean you, I don't I, I sure couldn't it's just beyond I want to say beyond belief because that would be taking it too far because we are asked to believe it. so John what John does is he writes down a vision that he has strange vision right a little strange He's got an imagination. He asks you to use your imagination. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation meaning the revealing of, of what Jesus says is the future. And then revelation in terms of revealing who Jesus Christ is. He is revealed. 
It's called the apocalypto, and that's the Greek word for revelation, which from, we, we know that word, right? Apocalypse. Unveiling. And uh, it's the unveiling of, of how this present age intersects with the age to come and what happens. And it's the grand narrative. It's the end of the grand narrative as it's, as it's been revealed to us that goes on forever, from time to beyond time. And it blows your mind uh, as you read it. I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone. There's other narratives in our world, and there's one that uh, science has, and uh, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it goes something like this, that in five billion years, the sun will die. The sun, the solar, you know, that thing up there, it comes up every day, we say, the sun will rise tomorrow. Well, Well, there'll be a tomorrow where it won't rise. That's just, you know, science knows that. The sun is about halfway through its life right now. It's about five billion years old. It's going to, have, and we don't know exactly the day or anything. And do you really care? Because you know, but uh, but the the way it works is, that, where's the hope in that story? There's nothing beyond that. Well, I'll tell you, there, there is hope amongst those who are uh, believers in progress and technology that, you know, maybe somebody like Elon Musk will fire enough rockets up there that we'll find another place to exist, right? But it's just the existence of the species. It has nothing to do with the you and the longings of your heart. I mean, is the longing of your heart to become part of a species that lives on past the death of the sun? I, I just don't get excited about that, personally. Uh, so this, this story stirs us up. And, and what, what we know, and I think I'll use it as an example in just a sec, is that when, when you have hope for tomorrow, you have a better today. So here's my example, that uh, if you're going to have a vacation, by the way, I'm going to Israel in a week, and I'm kind of excited about that. There's a group of us that are going. And, but you know, the best part of any vacation, I think, is the, is the day before you leave, because you're so excited. And it's before they lose your luggage, you know, or whatever happens. <laughs> and, uh, but you do, you get so excited. If you're going to Hawaii, you can kind of feel the waves on you, or feel your, your, your toes are in the sand before you ever get there. On a rainy day out here, you just dream about it, right? Well, it's, it makes your day better when you know that the future is bright. And uh, you'll see that that's one of the reasons that John writes the Revelation. It's a bright future for those who uh, hang on God's word, his truth. Well, I wanna, uh, we're going to come to communion later, and here's how we're going to do it. And um, this is our, our getting us to the table, but why is this new creation needed that's re- referenced here in the text? And what will it be like? Real simple questions, although not easy to understand. And then the invitation and how it ties in with the Lord's Supper. Why is it needed? I want to make a point here. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I think I could probably overstate it, but I want to really make it as clear as I can. That at the end of the first century, uh, as John is writing this, he's an old man. Remember, John was uh, 70 years earlier. He was there when Jesus was crucified and, and rose from the dead. He was one of the witnesses of all of that. And now he's, he's writing roughly 70 years later as an old man. He's on an island called Patmos. I've been there. And uh, that's where we, right there off of the modern Turkey. And um, he has... Uh, a reason for writing, and it's because Christians <clears throat> have been are being persecuted by Domitian, the Roman emperor, who was. We, we talk about Nero a lot. Nero was 30 years before, uh, roughly Domitian, who was 
more systematic in his persecution of the Christians. Now, anybody who, who's, here's the key. You could, you could worship anything in the empire, in the Roman Empire. Anybody, anything, whatever, as long as you said Caesar is Lord. And one group couldn't do that, and that was the Jews. And they, because they were, that was so bedrock in their religion, the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you were not, so they just wouldn't do it. They refused to do it. They were going to get in rebellion over it. And uh, Rome was smart enough to realize, you can't, can't do that. So we we're going to make an exemption for them. But anybody else is going to have to say Caesar is Lord. So what happens at the end of the first century that we've watched this story of the unfolding of stuff that you have these two groups, you have the emerging Christians who were primarily Jewish in their roots and now they're separating from the synagogues and they're becoming Christians without that Jewish uh, connection as much anymore. And guess what? They, They are now different, weird, and vulnerable to persecution because they will not say Caesar is Lord either. Only they don't have the exemption. See how it works? So there's persecution going on. Now, that's why John's writing this. We can, we can pretty much be sure about that. And we can also be sure that he's not writing it for future generations who are curious about how the world's going to end. That's not why he wrote it. And we have got to remember that. This is written primarily to the persecuted church. And, and if, we, if we find other things in there, that's, not, that's secondary to why John wrote it. And uh, throughout history, it's the persecuted who have found the most stuff in this book. Not, you can look at the list of people who've been wrong about all their predictions that they've made about this book. And the persecuted church just finds food there to eat. Let me give you a picture of somebody I want you to know. This is uh, Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman, uh, uh, amazing man. Uh, not not well remembered by most, but uh, he was uh, an academic. He was uh, obviously he was uh, a minister, and he wrote books. He spoke. He was a mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King, so he has credentials. And he wrote a book on African American spirituals, and we're going to sing one here in just a minute. I'm priming you, and. Uh, and in that book, he, he got into the why behind those spirituals and the, the, the big criticism of those spirituals, along with other hymns too, but particularly African-American spirituals, is that they're so otherworldly. And they borrow from the book of Revelation pretty heavily. And so they, if, you, if you listen to them, you'll find lots of references to crowns and thrones and uh, uh, streets of gold and pearly gates and all that kind of stuff. And so the, the criticism is, if those, if those African-American slaves had, had been more in touch with this world instead of the other world, then they wouldn't have been so submissive and docile to their masters. You see the logic there? You probably have heard this, but in other words, the focus on the other world is it's a way of keeping them in their place in this world. And he responds to that criticism. And um, I I want you to hear what he says, because he totally disagrees with that. This is his voice. The hard facts, suffering, have uh, made clear this faith served to deepen their capacity for endurance, ability to absorb their suffering. It taught people how to ride high in life and look suffering squarely in the face that, that suffering that argued most dramatically against all hope 
and to use their sufferings as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all of its cruelty, could not crush. In other words, focusing on the future, the images that come to us in the book of Revelation, gives them hope for today. <laughs> and just, think, just imagine the life of an American, African-American slave. How hard it was. And they found joy in these songs. And so the, the criticism that he's responding to is to someone who says, you know, all that stuff, all that stuff about, you know, resurrection and miracles and, and uh, the stuff of heaven, what they really need is just good education that will help lift them out of their estate. This is the progressive view that he was running into at Harvard. And just think what education, I mean, I'm all for education, but does it give hope? Does it give hope for you you to be educated that the sun will die in five billion years? Does that give you hope? How is that going to sustain you today? It brings me down. Does it bring you down a little bit? I mean, I feel hopeless when I think about that. But that's all there is. And our best hope is in technology and in somehow the species surviving a very impersonal way of looking at life. They needed hope to know that there is a day coming when you don't get away with anything. You know, suppressed peoples feel this. And they feel it today. There's people today who love the book of Revelation for the reasons that we're talking about. They need a judgment day. So what I want to do right now is go ahead and uh, we're going to sing one of these songs. And I want you to imagine yourself, you'll know this song, but I want you to imagine yourself singing it as an African-American slave and not as a person sitting here in a nice, comfortable place. All of you thought Mark was going to lead us, right? But you I could, decided. I could. <laughs> he could, he really could. All right, uh, let's go to that next slide. All right, so Swing Low, Sweet Charity is what we're going to sing. When we get to the verse, I looked over Jordan, it's a call and response. So I sing the first line, you'll sing the second one, okay? Very, very simple. Uh, I think um, getting a sense of rhythm is important, and so I'm, I'm clapping on two and four. So if you're thinking it's one and three, it's not. So here we go. <clears throat> Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Sing that one more time. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? A band of angels coming after me. Swing low, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. And if you get there before I do, tell all my friends I'm coming to. 
Swing low, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Yeah. Thank you for indulging. Yeah, that was good, though. But you see that? How that, that song can come alive if you put yourself in the place of people who are underprivileged in this world. Well, one other thing before we get to the, uh, the what's it like, and that is that it, it, we have to say it's needed because it's, it fulfills prophecy. And uh, the book of Revelation, is, is, it puts a, a kind of a punctuation mark on the Bible. And you see the convergence points of prophecy coming together. And we remember that the prophets of the Old Testament always spoke in terms of judgment and salvation. And they looked for the day. The day it's called the day of the Lord. You'll find that phrase over and over again. The day of the Lord will be like this. And their surprise of the, the big surprise of Scripture is that Jesus Christ comes in two days. The first coming that we referenced earlier with Mary in the the, the uh, way that he came into this world and then the second coming in a very majestic way that comes back as the king of kings and the lord of lords and, um, and we're not there yet folks if you haven't noticed read the news and look into your own heart and look around and we're pretty much a mess okay now can I, do I need to convince you and I ache in the places that I used to play, and uh, I, I got things that I could complain about. And it's hard, this world, this life. We need, there's a longing inside of me for something better. And there's a day when, uh, is, it, is it Sam or Frodo that says that all sadness will come untrue? And I look forward to that day. Oh, I long for that day. That day informs my joy today. That day's coming. All right, so uh, fulfillment as well. And then uh, we want to get to the, what's it going to look like? And I want to start out with a bunch of the no's that are, um, here we go. No's as in N-O's, okay? So this, the book of Revelation gives us a, a whole bunch of these, and I'll pick up just on some of them. There, some of them are in the text that was read for us. Some of them are elsewhere. But there will be no more sun. Well, science tells us that, Right? The, the, but that's, the, the reason is because God himself will be the light. There will be no more night. There will be uh, no more sea or ocean, apparently. That's what it says. And uh, more on the, on the sort of political, cultural side of things. There will be no selling or buying. Capitalism is absolutely dead at that point. And some of you can say amen, and I don't know, whatever. But it may, may it not be an idol in your life. And democracy is dead. You won't need that. God is ruling. And uh, there won't be any violence, no more guns. You're, they'll be beaten into plowshares, is the phrase from the Old Testament. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the idols of today are just done away with. And, I, I, and you've got to be glad. There's no more, it says in the, in the text here, there's no more curse. And we, we know what that means. There's no more death. There's no more evil. There's no more sin. Even there's no more temptation. Oh, I need that one. And so uh, I, could, I could go on. Oh, no more tears. No more pain. I mean, it's just, 
It's a long list of no's that are really big positives, right? And uh, we take those as promises. The other thing that's interesting in here, before I go to the, the, pos- the big yeses, oh, and by the way, there's no harps. <laughs> there's no mention of a harp in the Bible, or at least in this section of the Bible. So the only people who play harps in heaven are those are harp players. And there'll be saxophone players and piano players, and go ahead, have at it. And there's no clouds. I don't find any reference to cloud. People, you know, sitting on clouds and having a little, you know, none of that going on. So you know, we, we've gotten some images uh, into us that we need to flush out. But the, the other one that's really big that we need to flush out, and it's okay to, to say this and to think it in a sense, but there's no place where it says somebody goes to heaven. In fact, what does it say here in chapter 21? Heaven comes down. The new heaven and the new earth come down. Well, we need to let the Bible kind of set us straight. What about the yeses? There's, I'm going to just focus on three that are in the text in chapter 22. The first has to do with, well, they all have to do with Eden being restored, the Garden of Eden being restored. And before I get to the River of Life, which is the first one mentioned, I want to give you the, the Garden of Eden. Uh, the way we, if we go back to, the, we don't have time to go back to Genesis chapter 2, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a mountain garden. So imagine a garden on a mountain, and a river flowing from the top of the mountain. And that it symbolically, it's a river that comes from God, and there's life in that river. And there's trees everywhere, but there are two trees in the middle of the garden. And one is the tree of life, which is mentioned here, and the other one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's, that sets us up. Just remembering that is in Genesis chapter 2. It sets us up to hear how Eden um, gets restored in the new heaven and the new earth that is in our future. So let me read for you um, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. So we're in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and there's a great street in that city. And there's a river that is flowing through that street. So I don't know, it's, it's an image, right? And John is, is communicating uh, something there. We remember that in the Bible, the river is uh, an image of, of the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's an image of, of God's life and what he wants for us. And you can find it in Ezekiel and the other prophets, but I want to focus in on Psalm 46, verse 4, that says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, meaning Jerusalem. Now, we're going to be in Jerusalem, and I'm going to be in Jerusalem in a week or so, or I leave a week from tonight. And one of the, I've been there before, and one thing about Jerusalem you don't notice is there are any rivers. <laughs> There's, there's, there's water in, in places where you know, every city needs water, but there's no river in Jerusalem. And yet, Scripture is always talking about the river in God's city. How does that work? Well, it's Jesus Christ. He's the one. He's the river. He, he, in, in, uh, last week, uh, J.D. was preaching from John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. In fact, your daughter was the living water, uh, Leslie. Yeah. And so if you were here last week, you'd know what I'm talking about. But we acted that out. And uh, he is the living water. And he says in John chapter 7 that all who believe in me, rivers of living water will flow from their innermost being. 
So this, this placeholder in Scripture called the river is the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is the river of life. And then we get to the tree of life. And I'll read that verse 2 for you. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? That this river coming down the main boulevard and then somehow the tree, and you maybe imagine it with roots on each side coming, coming together in the middle and the tree going up, I don't know. But there's fruit on it. There's fruit for every season on it, uh, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That's an Old Testament um, reference there. The healing of the nations. So let's go back to the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. You remember there were two trees there, and you could eat from the tree of life, but you were told not to eat, and there was a big warning there. It was, in fact, it was the only commandment. You know, we got ten later. <laughs> there was just one, one commandment. This is really simple. Human beings, just follow this one thing. Don't eat from that tree. And we ate, and I say we because we are in Adam and Eve, we ate from that tree. And as a result, everything was separated. We were separated from God. So we'd say theologically we're separated. We're, we're no longer in communion with God. We are separated from each other socially. We're separated within ourselves. Have you, have you ever, I mean, I see people talking to themselves sometimes. And I'm wondering, what's going on there? Well, they're having a conversation. But there's a, there's a, a wound in us that uh, psychologically needs to be healed. And then uh, from our world, from, from the environment, we're separated. And so and when we get to Romans chapter 8, it talks about all of creation crying out for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed and for the healing of, of all things. And that's where the, the healing is, uh, the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, but they're for the healing of all those. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with ourselves, that inner healing and our relationship to the world around us. The, the problem is that they got separated, and then the, that tree of life is still there, and God did something very, very gracious in chapter 3 of Genesis. He said, I'm going to expel them from the garden so that they won't eat from the tree of life. Now, why would that be a bad thing? How many of you want to live forever in your current body, life, world around you, reading the same headlines, maybe it's getting worse every day? How many of you really want that? How many of you long for that? See, I don't, I don't long for that. I've got a sore shoulder right here and a sore hip right here, and I could go on and on and on, right? And uh, I, the last thing I want is to live forever in this body, in this world. There's something, uh, cry, cryonics, that's the word I'm looking for. And it, the way it works, this is part of the, the scientific worldview, is that if you... If you freeze yourself after you die, if you do it quickly, and then they put you in, you pay a big, a lot of bucks for this, but you pay, and then you, they put you in a, a, a freezer tomb, yeah, in storage, and then when technology grows and increases, then they unfreeze you, they thaw you out, they maybe put you in the microwave, I don't know what they do, but uh, then they inject you with whatever the new drug is, and you're back, to, does anybody want that? You know, Walt Disney was said to have done that. I think that was just a, a rumor. And he's, you know, the rumor, I mean, you find all kinds of rumors, like he's buried under the Pirates of the Caribbean. And yeah, and on, and yeah, yeah you have to be careful with rumors. <laughs> yeah. But who would want to live forever as, as we are? So God 
we, we ate that thing that brought, brought all that separation. He graciously takes us out of the Garden of Eden so that we won't eat of the tree of life and live forever in that state. And here's what we get. Jesus Christ is the true tree of life. And he's one, I mean, it's all healed, okay? Finally, we have one more reference here, and that is the face. Uh, we'll see the face of God. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There's no, uh, in, in, the, in the Bible, there's no a stronger or more intense way to talk about intimacy with God than to see his face. It is, it is kind of overwhelming. In fact, when Moses longs to see God's face, and you can just, I just love the hunger that's in Moses' heart to see God's face, but God graciously doesn't allow him to. He allows him to just catch a glimpse of his backside, whatever. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's all vision stuff at that point. But the reason is because God's face is so holy and so loving. It's beyond our imagination. We have never met anyone close to the love and the holiness of God. And if we were to see it and look upon it, we would just be undone, psychologically undone. I don't know. That's the reason that we're protected from seeing God's face. And yet it says here that we will see his face. You know, we put on a game face, right? <clears throat> or we put on a mask that uh, we all do that all re- pretty regularly. Uh, some kind of mask where we're different people in different places that helps us to navigate life. And just imagine that day when you will make eye contact with God and he with you, and it's the real you before the real him. How are you going to do? Because for me... I get two emotions. I get scared and I just get longing for it because I know that's where hope is. I mean, just imagine that. Looking into those eyes. So the eyes are the the most intense and personal part of the face. And you look into the eyes and you discover, here's my thing, I am so glad that when I look into the eyes of God, I see Jesus Christ, my Lord, who I love and who loves me. And somehow he doesn't see all the junk in my life. I long for that. I hunger for that. I thirst for that. I want that. Jesus Christ is the face of God. So he's the river of life, the tree of life. He's the face of God. All things come together in Christ. That's what Revelation is telling us. Finally, the invitation. Uh, We have this table. I want to get us there. But tonight we're going to do a Seder dinner. And the Seder dinner, if I can kind of do it on a timeline, the Seder dinner is out of the Passover meal and it, it foreshadows, it points to, it predicts this, the Last Supper, where there's so much imagery that goes back there. But this table also points towards Revelation chapter 19, which is called the Messianic Banquet or the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you go to, we don't have time to do the whole book of Revelation today, but if you want to read chapter 19, you'll see this banquet there. And that's the celebration of God's love for all time. And it's an event in the future. So you have this Seder, Last Supper, looking forward to what is to come. Jesus, in this, um, in this chapter, of chapter 22, I think it's verse 17, he, he says, come all who are thirsty. He invites us to come and to be with him. And we get a taste of the future as we come to this table. So what I'd like to do right now is lead us in a prayer that will take us there, if you would pray with me. Oh, Lord God, 
by the power of your spirit, the insight of your spirit, and the wisdom of your spirit, look into our hearts right now and make us hungry. Increase our hunger for the highest and the best, for you first, for your kingdom, for your mercy and grace, for your righteousness and peace, for a future that is brighter than anything we can imagine. Make us thirst for the future that is better than our best imaginations. We can almost taste it, Lord. Give us hope for today as we dwell upon the future. And may we hear your voice that says, Come and be with me at this table. Amen. There's the invitation.